Hey, if you've got a Bible, find Romans chapter 13. Romans chapter 13. If you don't have a Bible, uh, or even if you do, we want to encourage you to check out the Bible app. Uh, we've got sermon notes in there. Uh, if you go to the events tab, you'll, you'll find it in there, all right? We're going to be in Romans 13. We're going to jump around a little bit in the chapter as we work through it today, but we'll, we'll get to all the places. We're in this series called Made for More. And in Made for More, uh, I've already talked about this a little bit today, right? We're trying to, to help all of us answer three questions. Who's God made me to be? What's God asking me to do? And where's God want me to go? And so in community groups, you're, you're working to answer those in a very personal way, what God's calling you to do. Uh, and then on Sunday mornings, we're continuing our study through the book of Romans, and we're thinking about what does that mean for us as a church? Like, what are some of the things that He's called us to to be and to do and places he's called us to go. And so we're exploring those as we uh, finish the book of Romans here. So today we're in Romans chapter 13. We started a couple weeks ago with the idea of we want to be a kneecap, to be a kneecap. As the body of Christ, if we could pick one body part, we want to be a kneecap because we're tapping into the power of Christ like a kneecap does and strengthening others and helping them to move forward and run faster. Last week, we talked about uh, one thing we want to do, which is to love outside our gifts. Uh, on this journey of trying to figure out who God has, has created us to be, it's really easy to get isolated. It's really easy to get really self-centered. And so it's a good reminder that, man, the, the core of being made for more is learning to love outside of our gifts as God gives us opportunities. And so uh, our letters up here have ways that you guys specifically felt like God was calling you to love outside your gifts. And today we're going to work on another do thing. And that do thing is uh, to follow Jesus first. Follow Jesus first. Sounds really simple. It's one of those things that sounds simple and yet it's really hard to do. So um, pray with me uh, as we get started today, asking that God would uh, speak to us. And we'll go from there. Heavenly Father, we pray that as we open up your word this morning, we would hear from you about a man, a man named Jesus. May you give us uh, the courage, the strength, the capacity, the endurance to follow him first. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. When I was in high school, I had made the decision uh, to pursue ministry in college uh, with my degree. I wasn't sure what that meant, but I knew what the Lord wanted me to do. I had figured out, or so I thought, that part of my calling. And I went to church one Sunday. I love my home church. And a teacher from my school who knew me, loved me, went to church with me, came up to me and began talking to me about this decision. And then he promptly told me, you could impact so many more people if you would become a teacher instead of working with the church. I was a little confused by that. I was just a high school kid trying to figure out what my major was going to be in college. Now we're learning as we go through this series that it's not just what you do that makes you more, but who God has created you to be and where He's planned for you to go. And so uh, I didn't know that then, but, but thankfully I had wise people around me, including my parents, that helped me to realize it's not just about what you do, but there's so much more to this, this situation. It was an unsettling time when you have people that you know and you've trusted that, and you think you figured out what God's called you to do or to be or where He's called you to go, and then somebody tries to jump in on that. But there was a bigger problem that was surrounding this little scene. I got really upset and angry with that person for thinking they had the right to say that to me. And I owed that, that man forgiveness. 
But instead of giving him forgiveness, I avoided him. I don't know if any of y'all have ever done this. Something happens in a relationship. Something happens between you and another person. And all of a sudden, you just avoid them. It's the easiest, it's the quickest solution. And what we don't realize is that when we begin to avoid people like that, we begin to live in debt to them. I was living in debt to this, this teacher. I owed him forgiveness. I was in debt to him in that way. And, and, and I was never doing my duty as a Christian to give him that forgiveness, whether he accepted it or not. And, and I think that this is true for almost all of us. We would rather be in debt than do our duty. We would rather be in debt than do our duty. And this applies all kinds of ways in our lives. But, but why is this true? Why is it true that we would rather be in debt to someone or to something than to just do our duty, to, to be committed to, to doing what we're supposed to do? Well, you see, we despise this idea of being responsible to someone or something. So instead of committing to our duties, we operate on a system of IOU that allows us to get what we want now. We do this financially, we do this in life, but we do it relationally. And when we begin to do it relationally, it really begins to break things down. So Paul says this in Romans 13, verses 7 and 8. And he, he kind of bears this idea out. He says, pay your obligations to everyone. Taxes to those you owe taxes, tolls to those you owe tolls, respect to those you owe respect, and honor to those you owe honor. Do not know, owe anyone anything except to love one another, for the lo one who loves another has fulfilled the law. Paul does this really sneaky little thing in here, right? He's like, he's talking about, and we're going to get back to this, he's talking about submitting to government leaders, and then he says, here's one way, you don't want to owe anyone anything, so pay taxes. Well, no one really likes to pay taxes, right? We'd rather be in debt than do our duty, but we, we do it, okay, we do it. We, we pay our tolls, but then Paul makes this really, like, it's like we're walking this way, and then we just 90 degree turn. Because Paul recognizes this goes way beyond money. Paul dives right into the deep end. He jumps from taxes to tolls to respect. And when he does that, it helps us to see that we think of debt often only in financial terms, but our IOU culture is changing the way that we relate to one another. Respect. For many of us, we only give respect after it has already been given to us. Well, if they don't respect me, I don't have to be respecting them. We do the same with honor. I'll honor them whenever they honor me. We live in this really weird relational debt. And Paul says don't owe anyone anything. In fact, the only thing you should owe them is to, to love them. And so Paul says this. And we're like, oh yeah, that makes sense. I shouldn't owe anyone anything. I should just love people. That's what I should hear from the church. And yet, I just begin thinking about my own life, and maybe you can check some of these boxes, right? Don't owe anyone anything except to love them, and yet, I can think of all kinds of times that I leave my family behind as I run out the door of our home, and I say something like, I'll make it up to you. Don't owe anyone anything except to love them, and yet, I avoid people I haven't forgiven because I still owe them that forgiveness. Don't owe anyone anything except to love them, and yet I tell someone that we should get together sometime soon. And then I avoid them the next time that I see them in public because I still owe them a text or a call to try and figure out when I'm going to see them soon. 
I offer to help someone with something, but then I never make the time to actually make good on my promise. I just said that so that I would be, you know, viewed more favorably by them. And as a result, the relationship has changed, right? There's a debt now. There's something between us. And it's much harder to just love that person like, like we're supposed to than what it was before. We struggle to honestly commit to one another because instead of operating as Paul writes, owing nothing to anyone but love, we live in debt to one another. And we do that because we're unable to do what James writes about in his letter when he says, let your yes be yes and your no be no. We'd rather be in debt than do our duty. You know, if you've ever uh, paid off a debt, I got this fun little notification. So uh, we have a Kroger credit card that we don't do a ton with it, but it helps us get gas points and all those things, right? We pay it off, all those things. We have some credit cards that we haven't paid off, and we'll talk about those later, right? I'm not not talking about that right now. I'm talking about this other one. The Kroger credit card. This week, I bought a small thing of groceries on it, and I paid it off, and then Mint, a little financial app, pops up, and it's like, congratulations, you've paid off your account. You know, it's like, woo, yeah, paid off an account. That feels good. If you've ever paid off a debt, you know that feeling that you get when it's no longer hanging over you. Like that was, that was kind of a false, false paying off of accounts. But if, maybe if you've borrowed money to, to pay for a car, when you pay for that last payment, it's like, what am I going to do with all this money back in my budget? This is amazing. But when you're in the middle of paying off debt, you just begin to normalize living there. Well, I know that X amount's going for the car payment every month. You get used to that payment just coming out of your bank account. You don't even count on it. We've normalized this financially, but I'm afraid that we also begin to normalize this in our relationships and most importantly in our relationship with Christ. Because you see, when we normalize operating in this relational debt, we carry it into our relationship with Jesus Himself. Instead of accepting His grace and following His commands, we feel entirely disconnected from Him and from His church. We feel isolated because there's an IOU that we feel like is living between us. We begin to avoid Him. We feel separated from Christ because instead of doing what He asks us to do, we've taken that grace and the blessings in our lives and we've used them for what we want instead of for His plan and for His purpose. Instead of figuring out who He's called us to be, what He's asked us to do, where He's called us to go. We've borrowed against grace and we struggle to know how to relate to the One who gave it to us in the first place. We'd rather be in debt than do our duty. So how do we read the rest of what Paul is going to write here in Romans 13 through the lens of the Gospel? Through the lens of of Jesus dying on the cross to pay for our debts. How do we do that? And stop living in debt to Him and to one another. Let's go all the way back to verse 1. Romans 13, verse 1. It says, Let everyone submit to the governing authorities. Since there is no authority except from God, and the authorities exist are instituted by God. Like, what does this have anything to do with my debt between me and God? I want us to look at that phrase, since there is no authority except from God. You see, Paul, as he writes this phrase, he no doubt has in mind something that Jesus himself said to a man named Pilate. Verse 1 is pointing back to Jesus' encounter with Pilate. When Jesus was wrongfully arrested, right? 
When he was arrested, he eventually ended up in the courts of Pilate, a government leader who was to decide the fate of Jesus. Pilate would have Jesus flogged. He, would have, he was the one that had the crown of thorns placed on his head. He, he was the one that would continue to question Jesus. And as he questioned him, Jesus would not defend himself. Why? Because Jesus was more concerned in that moment about doing the right thing than being right. And we read this in John chapter 19, verses 10 through 12, about their encounter. Jesus won't answer any of the questions. And it says, So Pilate said to him, Do you refuse to speak to me? Don't you know that I have the authority to release you and the authority to crucify you? And Jesus says, You would have no authority over me at all. Jesus answered him, If it hadn't been given you from above. This is why the one who handed me over to you has the greater sin. And from that moment, Pilate kept trying to release him. But the Jews shouted, If you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Anyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. That's a moment, folks. Because in that moment, Jesus clearly let Pilate know that he wasn't under his authority. And Pilate clearly recognized that was true. And yet, Jesus continued to submit to everything that he said. Jesus was beaten when Pilate ordered it. Jesus submitted to the unfair release of Barabbas. Jesus submitted when he ordered him to be crucified. You see, this is the truth of the gospel, that Jesus submitted first so that he would be the first one we would follow. Jesus submitted first so that he would be the first one we would follow. This is how the gospel works. And it should be the model that we begin to carry into our homes, in our businesses, in our jobs, and our relationships. But this runs counterintuitive to everything we know to be true about the world that we currently live in. We operate on IOU. We operate on debt. We operate on get it now. We live in a world where power grabs are expected. We live in a world where the first to grab control is granted authority. We live in a world where control and power is held over our heads as motivation. You see, what Jesus is doing in this moment with Pilate had never been done. This was unprecedented. All the way back to Adam and Eve who tried to grab the power of knowledge from God Himself by eating the fruit, humanity has been trying to gain power. People can never have enough of power. They wanted power over each other, and ultimately we want power over God. And Pilate was no different. And when he tries to assert his authority and his influence, Jesus respectfully reminds him that his authority was given to him by someone else, someone from above. And in that moment, in that moment, Pilate wanted to release him, but the people made it impossible. What was possible, however, was that Jesus' submission in this moment was making a huge, pack, a huge impact on someone who had a bird's eye view to the whole event. In Mark 15, 39, we read a, a simple verse. It says, When the centurion, who was standing opposite of Jesus, saw the way he breathed his last, he said, Truly, this man was the Son of God. I came across a writing this week that told the story of Jesus' crucifixion from the perspective of the centurion. You see, he would have been there through this whole process. And as he watched Jesus submit again and again and again, he realized that this man was truly the Son of God. 
Jesus submitted first so that he would be the first one we would follow. The words of the writing say this, Pilate told them, I can find no charge against him and neither could Herod. And he asked the crowds, what do you want me to do with him? And they replied, crucify him. For what crime? I'll have him flogged and then release him, he said. And Pilate handed him over to the soldiers. To my soldiers, the centurion remembers, to be flogged. Roman floggings were brutal, so much so that sometimes the victims died before the crucifixion. The flogging was done with a multi-stranded leather whip. And on the ends of the whip were tied bits of bone and lead. The whip would be struck against the bare back of the accused. The Jews had a limit of 40 lashes, and so we would only count to 39 unless we made a mistake. We Romans had no limits. And the centurion thought to himself, surely now Jesus will make his move. But he didn't. There was no rescue party. I could do nothing now but my job. All I could do was watch as my men scourged him something fierce. His flesh was ripped apart. He eventually went to the cross where two rebels charged with treason against Rome were also crucified with him, one on each side. And they heaped insults upon him. Save yourself if you're the Son of God, the crowds mocked. Well, one of the criminals later repented. This man has done nothing wrong, he said. And I thought as I sat under the cross, yes, he's right. Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom, the criminal said. And Jesus answered, I tell you the truth, today you'll be with me in paradise. And then Jesus looked at me, and I thought as I stared at him, I want to be in that paradise too. The women were wailing. There were four of them nearby, one of them being his mother Mary. And next to her was a disciple whom Jesus seemed to have loved very much. And when he saw them both, he said, Woman, behold your son. And then to the disciple, Behold your mother. And I thought to myself, This is incredible. Even in the midst of dying on the cross, in a time of intense physical pain and mental anguish, this Jesus was thinking of others. And the words came back to my mind, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. Jesus was still in control. He was still strong. He was still ministering and thinking of other word, others. And afterwards, Jesus said, it's finished. And I wondered, what's finished? He seemed to be speaking about something more than this life. And then in a loud voice, he cried out, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. He didn't go out weak, as was apparent by his voice. He was still strong. He was still in control, as if he were waiting for all things to be fulfilled before he gave up his life. Not anybody taking it from him. And then he breathed his last. The curtain in the temple which separated the holy place from the most holy place was torn in two from top to bottom. There was a big earthquake. Rocks split open. Tombs were broken open. Later, bodies of many holy people who had died would rise to life and walk through the city. And I was terrified. I thought the end of the world had come. And I looked up at this man who days before was entering the city with palm branches waving. A man now at peace as if he had a smile upon his lips, such beauty, such love. And I praised God and then exclaimed, surely this was a righteous man. Surely he was the Son of God. One of Pilate's reports, a centurion, followed Jesus because he had seen Jesus submit willingly over and over again. Because Jesus was weak and yet he was strong. He was dead, yet he was fully alive. He was made less than, but he was clearly made for more. Jesus did that because he owed no one anything. 
He had submitted to Pilate. He had respected each person along the way. He had honored every bit of authority that God had followed. And in so doing, he had changed the world forever. So the big question becomes, as we look at this Romans chapter 13, how do you and I follow in those footsteps? How do we follow Jesus first and his willingness to submit so that others would follow him? Will you say with me, I will follow Jesus first, knowing that Christ's power comes through weakness? Because those are the instructions that Paul is giving us in Romans 13. And there's three ways that he talks about in this chapter that you and I follow Jesus first. The first is, I will follow Jesus first while submitting to government. While submitting to government. Romans 13, 1 through 6. Let everyone submit to the governing authority, since there is no authority except from God, and the authorities that exist are instituted by God. So then, the one who resists the authority is opposing God's command, and those who oppose it will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Do you want to be unafraid of the authority? Do what is good, and you will have its approval. For it is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, because it does not carry the sword for no reason. For it's God's servant, an avenger that brings wrath on the one who does wrong. And therefore you must submit, not only because of wrath, but also because of your conscience. Paul writes this, right, in, in a day where the rulers of his day saw themselves as God. And so for Paul to write in his letter that you're under God's authority, that would have been incredibly disconcerting to them. It would have been incredibly uncomfortable. We saw that with Pilate, right? As soon as Jesus told him that his authority was from above, Pilate was uncomfortable. Paul isn't being soft and telling us as Christians, just be soft, submit to everything. He's reminding them nicely that they're not actually in control. And at the same time, he's reminding his readers that they aren't either. You know, in our culture today, we have wrongly associated submitting to others with agreeing with others. And those are two very different things. Because I submit to someone does not mean that I agree with them. Certainly, Jesus did not agree with Pilate's decision to flog him or to crucify him, but he submitted to those. He trusted that whatever authority Pilate exercised was limited by God himself. And so Paul's suggestion is really simple. Do what is good. Do the right thing. Because even under the authority of an unjust government, you will be right in the kingdom of God. Paul's charge to us in Scripture is simple. Submit to the government, not because you agree with everything they do, but because you trust that their authority is granted to them by God Himself, whether they believe that to be true or not. When you adopt the Spirit, you're following Jesus first. You're acknowledging that your faith in the Creator is greater than your faith in human power. You say, but Blake, what about, what about when government's corrupt, or it's wrong, or it's unjust? Should we just sit on our hands? Should we silently submit? I'm no expert in that. But I do turn to the words of a Christian leader who influenced our government greatly, not through power, but through love. Dr. Martin Luther King said this, Here is the true meaning and value of compassion and nonviolence when it helps us to see the enemy's point of view, to hear his questions, to know his assessment of ourselves. For from his view, we may indeed see the basic weakness of our own condition. And if we are mature, we may learn and grow and profit from the wisdom of the brothers who are called opposition. It's in this same spirit that Paul encourages us then to follow Jesus first 
by loving our neighbors. We follow Jesus first by submitting to the government, but we also follow Jesus first by loving our neighbors. Verses 9 and 10 says, the commandments, do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not covet, and any other commandment are summed up by this commandment. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Love, therefore, is the fulfillment of the law. Eric and Sherry Allen, my mother and father-in-law, used to live in Henderson, Kentucky. And uh, they told the story of some neighbors that they had while living there that were not the greatest neighbors. Uh, it's always fun to hear family stories. Like, you just learn them more and more over time. So, like, I learned a new part of this story this week. It's just fun. So these neighbors, so much so, did not care for Eric and Sherry that they built a fence between their two houses and they painted one side of the fence, Eric and Sherry's side, and they painted it bright yellow. How awesome is that? Like, that's, that's just crazy. So that was their first move, right? Then one day, Eric and Sherry came home and uh, their windows, they had left their windows open on their house and the kids from next door had brought their hose over and sprayed water inside of the open windows. Those are some awesome neighbors, right? And so Eric and Sherry are like, they're like, Eric's serving at a church. I, I should include that for those of you who don't know Eric and Sherry. Like he's a minister on staff, coming home to water in his house and bright yellow fences, right? Love your neighbor. Isn't that awesome? So one night, the parents were gone, the kids were home by themselves, and he notices that there's smoke coming from their home. He runs over, he pulls the kids out of the house, brings the kids over to safety, and the house burns to the ground. Save their kids' lives. They end up rebuilding the house, the fence went away, and that family even started engaging with the local church. There's great power in loving your neighbor. Great power and loving your neighbor. Too often we decide to love our neighbors who are like us. We choose to love our neighbors that do things the way we would do them. I just love them. Instead of loving our neighbors wherever they're at. And when we make that mistake, loving the neighbors that are like us, when we do that, we invite the type of division that leads to injustice in the first place. We set up an us versus them. And that's not good or healthy. Kevin Smith, respected leader in the church, former pastor at Highview here in Louisville, I heard him say recently on a podcast, if we're going to convict the hearts of fellow Christians, we need biblical language. Our, our culture has lots of ways of addressing tensions between people of different colors. People are barking about what categories to understand justice in society. Here's what I know. Jesus said as a command, Love your neighbor. Let's follow Jesus first by loving our neighbor. It's a lot easier to do that when we are living in the light. We love Jesus first, or we follow Jesus first by submitting to the government, by loving our neighbors, and we follow Jesus first by living in the light. Paul closes chapter 13 by saying, Besides this, since you know the time, he says, Listen, this world's going to end, right? And since you know the time when Christ returns, it's already the hour for you to wake up. From sleep, because now our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. The night is nearly over and the day is near. So let us discard the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk with decency as in the daytime, 
Not in carousing and drunkenness. Not in sexual impurity and promiscuity. Not in quarreling and jealousy. But put on the Lord Jesus Christ. And don't make plans to gratify the desires of the flesh. You don't want to owe anything to the government. It's not a fun call when the IRS calls. You don't want to owe anything to your neighbor. But you also don't want to owe anything to yourself. You don't want to live with the guilt of what you're doing in the dark. And as long as there are things lurking in the darkness, you will struggle to follow Jesus first. You will struggle to find and live out your calling, who He's made you to be, what He's asked you to do, where He's asked you to go. You will wrestle with whether to take care of yourself or to love your neighbor. Just live in the light. Here's what that doesn't mean. Well, Blake, if I'm going to live in the light, I've got to tell someone every secret, every deed of darkness that I've ever done. Nope. If you really want to, you can. But that's not what this means. This isn't about shining a light on your darkest spots. This is about living in the light. This is about doing away with the things that are in the dark by any means necessary. To focus less on shining a light on your darkness and to focus more on running to the light, putting on the light, being in the light. And as you are in the light, the things of the darkness will fade away. Accountability shouldn't always be about sin management. It should be about asking someone to help you live in the light, to set spiritual goals, to move forward. You are made for more. So follow Jesus first by living in the light. Because you can't get out of debt until you get out of the dark. You can't get out of debt until you get out of the dark. So as we close this morning, and we respond to the Gospel, as we think about the fact that Jesus submitted first in a crazy way, submitted to the point of death so that He would be the first one we would follow. I have two questions for you. One, are you following Jesus first? Is He your first love? Does He get your first and your best? Two, what's your darkness? What's your darkness that you need to run away from? and get into the light. This morning, Jesus is calling you out of, out of your darkness. He's calling you into the light. And as we take communion, those of you who have been baptized into Christ, as you take communion, you're remembering that when Jesus submitted all the way to the point of death, you're taking that, that piece of bread that represents His body and you're dipping it in the juice that represents His blood, and you're remembering that He submitted he was still in control as He gave Himself so that you would follow Him first. This morning, you remember that as you take that, you're running to the light. You're living in the light. You're following Him first. Maybe this morning, you need to submit to baptism. Just as Christ laid His life down so that it could be brought up new again, He calls you to do the same to give your life to Christ, to follow Him first. And baptism, it signifies us burying the darkness of our old life deep in the water and raising you to a new life in the light. Maybe that's your step this morning. If you need to take one of those steps, if you just want to respond to the singing of, of the Word, if you want to respond through giving, we encourage you to do that as we sing and as we respond to the Gospel this morning.
But please, 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 remember what Christ did. Submitting. Giving it up all so that we would follow Him first. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank You for Your Word. It's not easy to submit. Our hearts, our sinful hearts, cry for power. We hunger for it. And so my prayer is that we would follow the example of Jesus this morning. That we would give up our, our rights, our authorities, our power to follow you first. Spirit, I pray that you would lead each person during our, our time of response. That those who are far from you would be compelled to, to step out to find new life. God, I pray that for those of us who are walking with you, we know as Phyllis said earlier that you're within sight even though we may not be in step with you. I pray that this morning would be an opportunity for us to get in step with you. To walk out of our darkness and into the light. To come to the altar of your grace. We don't want to owe anyone anything. We want to, we want to walk in freedom with you. We thank you, Jesus, for who you are and for how you love us. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.